Ride With Us, presented by Ace, the American Coaster Enthusiasts. I'm Michael Lombardi. I've been a member since I was born. My favorite ride is Titan at Six Flags Over Texas. And my favorite part about being an Ace member is all the perks that you get and the events that you can go to and have fun riding rides. Hi, my name is Rihanna DeGeorge and I've been an ACE member since last February. I love being an ACE member. I get to bring my daughter, we have a good time, and I get to hang out with you people. My name is David Lowry. I've been ACE member for about a year and the best part of being an ACE member, I think, are all of the events that our uh, group here produces. The best thing about being ace is the, the events and being able to meet other folks from different areas and my favorite ride is the Hulk. I'm Tanya Henderson. We've been a part of ACE for about three years now and the best part is the people that we've met and seeing them at all the events and just having that group. My name is Shelton Locke. I've been a member for two years and I think my, my favorite part of ACE is the events and kind of like meeting all these people I don't really know and like coming together to talk about coasters. Welcome to Ride With Us. Ride With Us. Presented by the American Coaster Enthusiasts, a group of super fans with a mission to appreciate, promote, and preserve roller coasters around the globe. Around the globe. It's time to keep your hands and feet inside the podcast at all times. Here's your hosts, Clint Novak and Chris Roberry. What is going on, my fellow American coaster enthusiasts? My name is Clint Novak. And I'm Chris Roberry. Happy January, Clint. It's a little cold outside, at least down here. It doesn't feel like January up here. It's 70 degrees. I think we need to flop weather patterns. Uh, you're um, supposed to have that. the 70. We're supposed to have the snow, right? Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> you know, feel free to take it anytime you want. Yes, yes. Not your typical off-season uh, here in, in Virginia. And, uh, dude, I am so excited. I am gearing up to go on a cruise in like three days. Oh, Oh, the music just changed. Hear those steel drums? I got the I got the island beat. Yeah. We're going to be talking about how to get through that long off season. I'm going on a cruise. We'll be talking about that coming up here in just a few minutes. Uh, that's a, certainly a great way to, to get through the uh, winter doldrums, to say the least. We're also going to learn this episode how a roller coaster is born from its concept to opening with our good friends at Ride Entertainment, Adam Sandy and Mark Rosenschweig. Mark, uh, Mark just called my cell phone uh, a few minutes ago for uh, business purposes. Not allowed to discuss in the podcast. I probably Ooh. shouldn't have said he even called me because you know, now rumors are going to run rapid about I mean, uh, Reddit just Funland blew up. Yeah, rumors completely just blew up all over on Reddit. You just you can't believe it. <laughs> and uh, we'll also be talking about an Ace Coaster landmark. It's all coming up on Ride With Us. But first, it's time for your Ace Event Roundup. Join Ace Eastern Pennsylvania for East Coaster on Saturday, February 1st at Hershey Park in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This event features a sneak peek at CoasterCon 43, presentations from all of your favorite parks, and don't forget that famous bake sale. On Saturday, February 15th, take a visit to Kentucky Kingdom for King Louis' Winter Walkthrough. This park-sponsored event includes a light breakfast, presentation, question and answer session, and an exclusive park tour with all net proceeds donated to Give Kids the World. Finally, join Ace South Central in the heart of Texas on Leap Day, Saturday, February 29th at Six Flags Fiesta, Texas for Fiesta Fest. For the complete calendar listing, just visit aceonline.org. 
Well, Chris, uh, we are about halfway through that long break in between coasters closing down for the winter and reopening for the spring. And it's time, I think, we talk a little bit about what do you do to fill this long void of no coasters? Well, I know you had teased earlier that you're going to a very, very warm and luxurious location on a cruise ship. That's certainly a nice way to sort of pass the time, isn't it? Yes, this is like... Uh, okay, first of all, I want to say I'm bummed, not because I'm going on a cruise, but because I planned my cruise and then uh, the uh, Jeepers It's Winter uh, event fell while I was on the cruise. So now I can't go to the Ace event, which uh, is doing like cool things like uh, going and looking at uh, uh, Bush Gardens roller coaster construction sites and stuff like that. But I mean, I can't be too upset because I'm going to be on a ship in the Caribbean or, or I guess it's kind of like Mexico or the Mexican Caribbean. I don't know if that's a thing, but that's where I'm going to be. Sounds like first world problems <laughs> to me, my friend. Yeah, I, uh, I'm doing a Royal Caribbean ship. This is my uh, 10th cruise, I think. Wow. Uh, going to Perfect Day at Coco Cay. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's a private island owned by Royal Caribbean in the Bahamas, and over the last year, they've done this millions and millions of dollar refurb to it. It used to be just like an island that y your ship would anchor offshore. You'd get on a tender, get to the island, and then you'd just kind of hang out, eat lunch, and uh, swim. Now they have uh, they, they put in a pier so the boat can pull right up to the island. Uh, they have a big water park they just built on there. Uh, they have one of those balloon rides where you uh, get in the basket and it's tethered to the ground. And it goes up like 400 feet and then comes back down. Uh, so they got that, uh, and they got some cool, like, cabanas and really cool other stuff that uh, you can do on the island. And we only stopped for, like, six hours or something like that, but uh, really, really fun uh, time. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, going. I haven't been to the perfect day at Coco Cay. I've been to Coco Cay before it was the perfect day. So Oh, well, see, look at that. And here's the great thing about it. It really is just like visiting another amusement park, isn't it? Except – you're in you know the middle of winter so it's a nice little escape from that cold well what should be cold temperatures in virginia yeah, exactly. Uh, I, the, the water park costs extra. I think it's like $100 a person or something Ooh. like that. So it's kind of steep, uh, but cruise pricing, that's about right. Um, and uh, so I don't know if we're going to do the water park, but we're definitely going to do some snorkeling and some other stuff that they offer uh, at Perfect Day at Coco Cay. And then we have some other stops, too. We're going to uh, uh, Cozumel, which we really enjoy, uh, Costa Maya, which also has a really big water park, adventure park I'm going to talk about in just a second. And uh, we're going to to uh, Honduras, which we've never been to before. So um, Costa Maya has a water park that's themed to like uh, like the Aztec, like, you know, like Mayan, like temple, but mm -hmm. they have like zip lines and water slides and the zip lines like go into the water and stuff like it's crazy. Um, and it's in this jungle atmosphere. Really, really cool place. Uh, again, it's like 70 to $100, depending on where you get your ticket, but uh, a very adventurous uh, water park. And it's pretty new. It's only been around for about four years now. Um, but uh, yeah, have you ever have you ever gone on a cruise ship before? No, because I saw this movie back in 1997. Um, you might have heard of it. It's called uh, Titanic. Oh, so yeah. So I'm good. Um, I, I don't do well on boats. I can ride the tallest, fastest, craziest roller coasters on earth. You put me on my dad's boat fishing in Lake Coeur d'Alene, I'm done. Uh, it's, it's over. Just like give me my Dramamine, give me my ginger. It, it's not going to help. 
Well, uh, people who get motion sickness on small boats usually won't on a ship because a ship you can barely tell is moving. Sometimes you'll get like like you'll get a very small like tilt here and there unless you hit really rough waters. But uh, really, a cruise ship is like a big amusement park on the water. Um, you know, the cruise ship that I'm going on has like a slide that's like 70 feet down. Um, it has an aqua theater on the back of the uh, ship where they're doing like diving shows and fountain shows and all sorts of stuff. They've got zip lining. They've got flow riding, mini golf. They've got an ice skating rink. They've got bumper boats, I think. They've got an arcade, uh, all sorts. of. They even have a merry-go-round on the ship because uh, they have a, spa, a spot called the boardwalk and there's a, a merry-go-round that you can go and ride. So uh, it, it really is a cool, cool thing. And we just keep getting, the ships we keep going on are bigger and bigger. So this one's Harmony of the Seas. And I believe at this point, that is the largest cruise ship in the world. But, uh, you know, it's only by like two feet. <laughs> hey, you know what? Size matters when it comes to that. And you're talking about how cruise ships are becoming more like amusement parks. A carnival at uh, the last IAPA show just showed off their new Bolts Spike Coaster that's going on top of their Carnival Mardi Gras, which comes out later this year. So, so that uh, might be enough for me to say, well, maybe I could not be Jack and Rose and not be king <laughs> of the world and maybe take a chance on a cruise. We'll do we'll do a uh, it sounds like an ace event has to happen on this on this cruise ship, right? I mean, I clearly so, you know, get on that, guys. Yeah, if not, if not, uh, Chris and Clint are going to do a coaster cruise where uh, we're just going to sign people up and we're all going to go on a carnival cruise. It's going to be amazing. It really is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the, OK, the one sell. OK, the biggest selling point about a cruise is uh, depending on the cruise line, uh, all, most of your food is just included. So it's like a 24-hour floating buffet of food, and you're always eating. Like, there's food everywhere all the time, and it's all free. My you just keep God. grabbing it. So it, I put on 10 pounds every time I go on a cruise. So it's it's terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, and yet that's one of the best ways, I think, to probably pass the whole off-season. It's tough. It's really <laughs> tough down here because so many parks now are trying this whole year-round operation in the southern part of the United States. Uh, Six Flags Over Texas launched it this year. Uh, Six Flags Fiesta Texas launched it the year before. Of course, the Florida and the Southern California parks have been open pretty much every single day, uh, which is obviously nice for the folks who are down there. Uh, you know, I'm curious to hear what everyone else does, though, who may not necessarily be near a park who is open, you know, parks like in Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania. So we want to hear from you. What do you do to pass the time in the long winter? Do you go on a cruise like Clint does? I am a little jealous. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> or do you just go, you know, watching videos or do you get really hyped up for new rides coming out? Do you start watching construction updates? We want to know. So send us an email podcast at aceonline.org. Let us know what you do. And if you send us a recording, you just might hear yourself on our next show. Yes. Uh, great way to pass the, uh, the uh, off season, uh, you know, East Coaster, No Coaster, Jeepers, It's Winter. Your ace off season events are a lot of fun. You get to catch up with people that you normally wouldn't see in the uh, off season. That's a great way to do it as well. Cruising. Also, I've, uh, you know, you talk about uh, these year round parks. I know a lot of people in January and February who actually travel down to Florida or uh, California just so they can do uh, parks. I, I know a guy right now in Vegas who's uh, hitting up uh, that and doing some parks. And uh, yeah, so. So, uh, you know, people travel and uh, probably go to places that wouldn't typically be uh, be open uh, or, well, they would be open. But, uh, you know, you're enjoying the uh, the uh, the local parks. So 
And a nice benefit to that is because it's not necessarily peak travel season, you get to find quite a few deals either on airfare or especially on hotels. So it actually ends up saving you money by coming in the off season. Yeah, another uh, a cool tip that I would throw out there with the saving of travel. Uh, some people don't think about uh, traveling north to go ride coasters, but Minnesota, Mall of America, you got a whole amusement park indoors right next to the airport, very, very close. Uh, so it's easy to fly into Minneapolis, do Mall of America for one or two days, lots of cool stuff to do there. And uh, some people wouldn't typically think about that. I know, what is there, Edmonton Mall and in, in, uh in uh, Toronto or somewhere up in uh, Canada, they or have an, a mall. Huh? Edmonton Mall's in Edmonton. Ed, you're, lies. There's no way. <laughs> the There's, West Edmonton Mall is in Edmonton, which no. is in central Canada. I'm and I'll be gonna, honest, the only reason I know that is because I'm a hockey fan. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna believe that at all. There's no reason to call the mall after the city that it was built in. No lies. Okay. Obviously, I don't know my Canadian provinces or uh, or anything like that. Uh, okay, where you said it was in in where is it? It's in Edmond. The West Edmonton Mall's in Edmonton, which is, is in Alberta, like, which is that's in like the north of Idaho. Now that I'm looking at a map. Yes. That's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's north of Calgary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. North of Calgary. It's in the middle hey. of nowhere. Uh, yeah. Like, well, for that's most people, big old mall. for most people going to Edmonton, that's probably the farthest north you're ever going to go in your lifetime unless you maybe go to Alaska. Mm -hmm. Alaska, Alaska would be more north than that. Otherwise, you got to go to Russia. I mean, it's either Canada, Russia or Alaska. That's it. And uh, I don't think that there's any malls in Russia that you're going to be visiting anytime soon. So there you go. You can you can go. It's like the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. <laughs> this segment was going so well, Chris, until you had to throw in espionage. Come on now. <laughs> Sorry, comrade. <laughs> All right, so uh, those are some things that you could do uh, when you're hitting that long break in the off season, and we hope to hear from you. Like Chris said, send us your uh, recordings or send us your email and let us know what you are doing in those long off season breaks. So, Clint, this month we got a chance to sit down in depth with Adam Sandy and Mark Rosenschweig with Ride Entertainment. A lot of people may not necessarily know of the group, but they know about the rides that they build and that they help build. Check it out. I am very excited today to be speaking with Adam Sandy and Mark Rosenschweig with Ride Entertainment Group. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great, Chris. Thanks for having us. Can you tell us a little bit about what ride entertainment is. Sure. I, I think I can start, Mark, help out. I mean, really, it's a little bit of everything. We're very unique in the attractions industry. You know, you have some companies that just sell rides. You have some that just install, obviously, a lot of operators. Uh, for us, we actually handle a little bit of everything. So we have our sales division. We work with eight different partners. We install rides that we sold and other people sold. We operate several parks and attractions that are smaller standalones. Um, we have financial partnerships. Those are revenue shares that we have or like sky coasters or slingshots or zip lines that we own and others operate. And then we also own sky coaster. Well, so you guys touch a lot of aspects of the industry. How did it come to be? Well, kind of interesting, very 
very organically. Our CEO, Ed Hiller, who started the company back in the late 90s, um, was selling, was one of the first people actually to build a portfolio of products. Whereas in the past, a sales partner might have one product or I sell roller coasters or water rides or flat rides. And what Ed did was he built a portfolio, essentially creating a one-stop shop option for clients where if you wanted a River Rapids ride, we had that. If you wanted a steel coaster, we had that. And then we also were representing custom coasters at the time. So if you remember back around the 1999-2000 period, where it's seemingly four to six new wooden coasters a year were going up, most of those were custom coasters. And we were uh, selling for the company at the time. So it, it was a very unique thing. And then from there, and Adam, you can jump in as well, but it just sort of organically grew where people would ask us, hey, do you know anyone who can install this ride? So Ed saw there was a need for that, so we developed an installation division, and that's where that kind of started from. And then um, you want to talk about sure. Skycoaster. And, and right around that time, um, Skycoaster was for sale. Um, it was owned by Thrill Time at the time. They'd gone bankrupt, and so Ed uh, bought that out of bankruptcy. Um, and then just kind of continued that. So we had uh, financial partnerships. He purchased a portfolio of, of revenue shares, and we kind of grew that. Mark got our first partnership with like Toronto Zoo. We've done three with them, a carousel, a zip line, and a ropes course. And then in 2012, we started operating uh, the Flushing Meadows Carousel and the Forest Park Carousel, both in Queens. And that was kind of the start of our operations division. Um, so really just sort of as we saw needs, we tried to fill them. And we've kind of taken the sales approach, I think, by sort of having a, a lean team or, or not a gigantic company. We've kept it really lean and nimble. And I think that's allowed us to kind of try out some things that other larger companies may not want to get into. Very cool. So can you tell us for the fans listening, what are some of the brands that you all represent in the industry? Probably best known would be Gerslauer Amusement Rides, which is a, a designer of steel coasters, most recently best known for Hang Time at Knott's Berry Farm, Adrenaline Peak at Oaks Park, variety of different coasters and very versatile when it comes to design. Uh, essentially, everything from family, um, I, I hesitate to call them kiddie coasters because they're full-size trains, family coasters up to high thrill coasters with vertical lifts, LSM launches. Uh, Fun Time, which is a company best known for their Slingshot attraction and Star Flyer, uh, which are all across the world and, and the U.S. specifically. We also work with Ropes Courses, Inc. in Michigan, and they're a company that's best known for their SkyTrail product, which is a challenge course uh, where the, the uh, participant does not need to clip on, clip off. It has an overhead tracking system. Um, Adam, you want to? Yeah, talk? so naturally I don't have the list in front of me. <laughs> but it's, metal Bow's great. Yeah, metal, metal Bow's great. Um, out of Germany, they have um, a lot of family rides. This year we opened Tractor Town at Bankston Pumpkin Farm, which went over really well. And then uh, Black Bear Trail at Dollywood, which has been a really big success there. Um, Valtina, partner, do flying theaters. Uh, Lagotronics Projects does... Um, really kind of anything interactive. So they have the game changer system, dark rides, dark ride technology, and then KCL engineering, which does some awesome lighting systems, like the ones that just opened an American dream on hang time and a couple other places. And we go back on metal bell, because that's, that seems to be a company that most, even people in the industry don't know, let alone fans of the industry. 
they really got their big break as one of the initial partners for Legoland when the initial Legoland parks opened in Denmark and Germany and the UK and then later here in the States in California and then Florida. Uh, many of the original very funky interactive rides came from the creative minds at Metal Bell. They're a great uh, small company. You know, they, they do 10 to 12 rides a year, that type of thing. So we're very excited about the possibilities they have. And I think a lot of folks are starting to understand you know, how big ride entertainment is, especially with the installations, like you said, in American Dream, uh, as well as Knott's Hang Time, that the light show on these through KCL is just phenomenal. Yeah, it turned out really well. And, and kind of on, on the bigger side, like you mentioned, and those are, I think, two great examples. So like at uh, Knott's, you know, I, I sold the coaster and the lighting package, and then we actually did the installation too. Up at American Dream, um, I mean, obviously it's a huge project. There's a lot going on. And there we provided uh, two coasters, the ropes course, and the lighting packages on uh, one of the Intamin pieces as well as the uh, Launch Eurofighter. But also just because... You know, that project's been going on so long, and then all of a sudden we were just in a rush to finish. We had some of our team members, you know, just help with uh, final commissioning, testing systems, and stuff like that, because Gerslauer teams had already been scheduled other places. Uh, so we were just able to help in and, and uh, jump in and help out there. So I think that's the, the big difference when you think about what Ride Entertainment can do is just the, uh, the partnerships that we have, and we bring a lot of different things to the table than our competitors do. So what is a typical day like for you both? Is it like a nine to five type of job or I hear you laughing. So I'm guessing maybe not. Maybe 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> so take us through what would be like a somewhat typical day for you. I don't know if we have one. Yeah, it's really not. I mean, generally for me, like I'll, you know, I, I get up early and just check because we since we have a lot of European partners, I mean, half the people we sell for in Europe um, before I go to bed, if I have anything critical, I'll send that out to them. So I have kind of an answer in my inbox. And then for me, it's just really project specific. Some things that, you know, this time of year, working on the, the boosters that are going into uh, Six Flags St. Louis and Great Escape, as well as kind of tracking longer term projects. I mean, we're already, you know, talking to and have contracted for projects that are opening in 21, 22, 23. Kind of like, I don't want to say uh, greasing the squeaky wheel, but we're, we're trained multidimensionally. We all have titles, but we all kind of shift where the pressure is, if that makes sense. So you know, depending on the time of year, you know, I, I could be working on a new project. I could be helping Lance, who runs our Sky Coaster division, in, you know, with, with items there. Basically, where, where the pressure is and which division is having its busiest time is kind of where our focus shifts. So would that be in and all other duties as assigned type of thing? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Next man up, basically. Gotcha. What is the process for actually building and buying a ride? How does that get done? A lot of different ways. I mean, the big thing is really our industry is very relationship based. So, you know, whether it's big parks like Six Flags Cedar Fair or family parks like Canopy or Cliffs, most people, you know, know our portfolio and if they're thinking about something, they'll call us. Conversely, Mark and I are on the road a lot visiting people, and we kind of show them 
whether it's the new idea that our partners have that hasn't been done before or some things we open in Europe. Like this year, we've been showing off um, Fury and Mystic, the two Gerslauer coasters that open in Europe because they just haven't really been done before. They're both really great rides. And we're showing a lot of our North American customers those concepts because they most likely hadn't seen them just because so many park operators, you know, year round now in the u.s but especially during that uh, may to uh, labor day time people are just in park mode and not really thinking about what's going on so when the other rides open they don't necessarily hear about them so who exactly reaches out to who when the process begins a little of both i would say mm-hmm. um you know like like adam mentioned we have clients that know our portfolio that stay up to date because uh you know either they follow us on social media or they get our uh you know, our mass emails, et cetera. But we also travel and, and when we visit with clients, it's a social visit and sometimes maybe we don't even talk about rides. It's just, hey, how are you doing? How's your family, et cetera. But more times than not, they want to know what we have that's new. Everybody wants to know, what do you have that's new? What's coming out? And they may or may not know about new technology, but then we will put together a presentation and really walk them through all the benefits of the ride system. Um, but kind of going back to your initial question, which I think was tailored more specifically to roller coasters, hence this is an ACE podcast, but um, parks generally have a five to 10 year plan in mind and it changes, it's fluid, but um, you know, so year one might be a family attraction, year two could be a water attraction, et cetera. So for us, we really like to walk our clients through our entire portfolio and more or less get the feel, what demographic are you looking uh, to go after for project 2022 let's say so then we can go back to our portfolio and put a presentation together that's tailored exactly to what they're looking to do so without naming names what is one of the strangest requests that you've ever received and were you able to accommodate it (laughs) i actually had the one but this is like historic ride entertainment it's that gorilla that sits on yeah that's that's a good yeah Mm -hmm. what was um the original founder of the stratosphere what was his name bob stupak yeah yeah so you know more about this. Yeah. This is the most bizarre thing ever, though. When our company was formed, we were called SNMC USA just because Ed was actually selling some SNMC products. Ed sold the uh, the ride on top of the stratosphere and was there for that breaking in, which was a long, painful process just because you had this relatively easy coaster, but you had, you know, the Vegas winds and a bunch of hydraulic motors and a lot of complications that kind of fed into it. Um, so Stupak wanted something you know record-breaking and he actually came up with this idea that he wanted to have a free fall down the side of the of the uh, stratosphere and basically it was going to be a giant gorilla so if, if you can think of something like you know the something the size of that husk king kong concept like something you know maybe 10 meters tall a gorilla that big except it would be flying down the side of the stratosphere and so that that was the idea and we actually did kind of an engineering development, you know, cost for that. And it was astronomical and they just abandoned the project. But that was kind of the first one of the first big deals that Ed signed out of the gate was the, the idea that this would have been this record breaking gorilla dropping a thousand feet. And even then, you know, mag brakes were in this infancy. And I think the original concept was still to use a mechanical brake. So you can imagine the mechanical braking would have to start about halfway down the tower. So it, it was it would have been a mess. But it's just one of those things that, you know, we were able to accommodate, um, even if we're everybody is scratching their heads about how it might actually work out. And to this day, there is a giant gorilla plush toy 
that sits on a shelf as you walk into the Wright Entertainment corporate offices. Most people miss it, but if you catch it, it's almost like an Easter egg. You look up there, why is there a gorilla? Because there's nothing but photos and posters and you know awards and, and those type of things. And then there's a giant toy. So everything has a story, Chris. Absolutely. Well, that's what we're here to do is to uh, find out exactly what that's all about. I just can't imagine having those mechanical brakes firing all the way down the stratosphere. I mean, the neighbors must just have loved that idea. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think they got that far. So (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, the answer is basically we can do it. But so the, the, the idea kind of folded quickly after that. Shifting a little bit here to more on you. What are your college degrees in and why did you choose them? I was a history major. I don't know if I had a great reason. <laughs> it was really, I, I, the school I went to, DePaul, had, um, for the time at least, a really good TV video production studio. I was really interested in that. That was something I'd always been a, done in high school. And they ha- it was a small liberal arts school, so I could get in and do hands-on stuff as a freshman instead of waiting to, you know, to like you do at a lot of journalism schools. That Again, that was a setup then. It's been a while since I've been in college. I did some work there, but I just didn't really want to do it as a career. And just history had always intrigued me and interested me. And it just worked out really well because it kind of gave me critical thinking skills that I still use now. So even though I don't use history day to day, I really use a lot of the writing analysis and other things that I was sort of trained in at the time um, in my job now. My degree was psychology. Like Adam, I don't know if I had a really good reason for it. Um, I, I was, I guess, intrigued mainly towards the, the organizational side, which is more industrial, kind of like the Bob's and office space, that kind of thing. The problem solving, going in, looking at a situation, analyzing it, uh, and coming up with a solution with a team. And I, I think those those skills and those premises have helped me that premise, I should say, have helped me uh, in my career as well. Dick Knobel actually was pretty f- famous for saying in our industry, you don't really need a degree, or I should say the de- only degree you need is one in crisis management, which is just one that you kind of, you build over your time in the industry. Because going back to that, no two days are the same. And, you know, we're all in this because we love it. But, you know, I think a lot of people outside of our industry think we just ride roller coasters for a living. That's all we do. But um, as I like to say, nightmares or dreams too so there are you know you have a dream job but it's sort of like a balance and we could talk more about that later but yeah i went to the uh to suny oneonta which is state university of new york up near cooperstown for me it was just a, a good option to get away from uh, long island where i grew up and be close enough to go home when i needed to very nice so when you're coming into the industry who are you all looking up to or who did you look up to as you were starting your careers and I guess, who do you still look up to today? I would say for me, when I started, um, you know, I, I didn't really know a lot of people, but uh, Tim O'Brien, because my first job was at amusement business and Tim was still writing there at the time. And I knew Tim because he was on TV and he'd written some books like the amusement. I think the, it was the amusement park guide. Like the first one came out in 92 or three, I think. So it was kind of cool just work, you know, walking in there my first day and there's Tim and he was, you know, really nice. And at IAPA that year, he really introduced me to a lot of people. So he kind of just sort of rolled out the red carpet for me just because I like parks like he did and was super generous to me and just introduced me to a whole bunch of people, some of whom aren't around anymore. I'd say for me now, kind of people I've met since then, uh, someone I know, okay, is Hubert Gerslauer. 
who founded Gerslauer, and I kind of just respect him because he's definitely an old school handshake guy, you know, just does what he says, and they really run their business that way still, even though he's not in their day to day. And I'm also just impressed because he's a guy who had a technical background. He was an electrician. You know, he worked for, for Schwarzkopf for a while, then started his own electrical company in the 80s and worked for Schwarzkopf and Zier and other people and basically started a, a coaster company from that. So it's just someone I really admire that kind of, you know, was had an electrical background and took that and started this whole company that has a worldwide impact now. I mean, I think that's really cool. And on the other one would be probably be B&M just for I don't know them that well personally at all, but just really what they've done and their business philosophy. I mean, they had such a hands on approach when they were coming up with rides, like when they were working with Giovanola, I know Bill on our team, uh, like when they did the stand up at Great Adventure, like one of them would be on site and working through problems. And so often in our industry, we have a disconnect between what the engineers see and think about and what the maintenance guys deal with. And I think they did a really amazing job in the 80s of kind of cataloging those problems and processes and how to do things. And that's why they've been so successful is because the solutions they came up with, you know, the, the parts they had on Batman and Iron Wolf are still some of their typical parts. And you can buy parts for those rides. It's not like every ride they came out with, they came up with a different solution for. So they've got some amazing continuity in their technology, which means they spent time to do it right the first time, which you don't always get in this industry. And for me, I'll, I'll kind of do a quick timeline because like m many people in our industry, our careers are multiple phases. At a college I worked at, and I, I Maybe I'm jumping ahead here for another question, but I worked at Michigan's Adventure in 1998, the year Shivering Timbers debuted, and that was my first job in the industry at all, and I, I worked as an operations lead. And Camille Jordan-Mark, who is still the general manager of the park at the time, was my first mentor in the industry because um, she sensed my interest and passion in the industry, and I wasn't just another employee, and really taught me a lot that year about um, the back of house and how a, how a park is run. The park was still family-owned at the time, so she was she's still very involved, obviously, as a general manager, but the, at the time, being in the family, it was uh, she was involved in everything. And then when I started at Zamperla, because I worked there from 1999 to 2006 in sales and marketing, two people who are unfortunately are no longer with us that really kind of took me under their, their wing and respected, I felt, my knowledge and passion were Will Cook at Holiday World and Jack Krantz, who's the founder of Adventureland in Des Moines, Iowa. I spent hours in their offices just talking, shooting the breeze, talking about their family's history, the park history, and... I just got so much insightful advice from both of them about, um, you know, how the business worked. And, and I, I really, I always appreciated that because they, by no stretch, had to do that. And, and they did it, I, I felt like, because they wanted to. And uh, I'll also say uh, Ramon Rosario, who was my uh, director at Zamperla, went in there very wet behind the ears thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to be selling power surges and discos and all these rides. But obviously, it's not that glamorous. And for better or for worse, he really taught me the ropes of the industry, how the, how the relationships work. And as Adam mentioned earlier, our industry is all relationship-driven. It's basically everything we have is relationship-driven, essentially. So I owe him very much. And then another name that popped in my head, Adam, I think you and I would share this, recently retired from Hershen, Bob Shreve, mm -hmm. who's yeah. director of design development uh, in his last role. He retired about a year ago. And 
just the most approachable, smart, witty, and his experience ranging from Universal to Hershen and all the projects we worked on with him. Adam and I owe him a debt of gratitude for all the time he gave us and and the great relationship that we still carry with him. Yeah, and, and really I think Bob is so unique because Hershen's in this different spot than a lot of parks where they're big into storytelling, but they're doing it on a different budget level than Disney Universal. And I think Bob, with his background, is really able to create some amazing experiences. And obviously it's their team, not just Bob, but Bob really kind of led the way to say, how can we offer this world-class experience, but on the budget of a regional theme park? And they've, you know, come up with some great ideas and you know now they're opening whole areas like Wildwood Grove at Dollywood. And, and I think Bob, along with so many people there, have just done an amazing job turning Silver Dollar City and Dollywood into really destination properties now. Definitely. Absolutely. I would certainly have not driven about nine hours after Thanksgiving just to go down to Silver Dollar City in Missouri if it weren't worth the time. And it was absolutely worth the time. Yeah. Was that your first visit there? You know, it was, and I only waited 35 years to go. So <laughs> hopefully I don't wait 35 more years. And if Lisa Rao's listening, who's the public relations manager there, don't worry, Lisa, it will not be another 35 years. I can guarantee <laughs> you that. Yeah, amazing property. Absolutely. Yeah. So talking a bit about the industry, what do you both think that the industry needs more of and needs less of? More of, and I think we're going in the right direction, is diversity. Because we've, uh, Adam and I, we sound like a broken record whenever we, we've talked about this with many people, but our industry is historically a very white male industry, at least over the past 40, 50, 60 years. And I feel like we're going in the right direction. Our company is certainly very diverse, right? And I'll throw straight as a white male straight. <laughs> white male straight, sorry, yes. <laughs> so I guess you can kind of uh, say from that we need more of one and less than the other. But either way, I feel like the industry is going in the right path. We're also a very slow industry when it comes to, it's hard to say technology because the rides and attractions are, are high tech, but just how media is handled. There are many people that still think print media has value to it, you know, which it does to a certain extent. But I feel like, again, we're going in the right direction with social media taking, you know, its, its place to a certain extent. And yeah, just generally, uh, I, I feel like the industry is going in the right place in both of those accounts. And, and on the ride side of things, I think that we're thrilled that we're just seeing, I'd say technology used in a good way, if that makes sense. Because, you know, in the past, I've, I've heard so many times that like, oh, man, this new technology is going to kill the roller coaster and it's kind of still around. But or, you know, with things we're seeing with like our partner Logotronics projects where they're coming up with stuff that sort of combines the best of it's not just like VR, it's new proprietary technology they have that they can use, whether it's in a dark ride or augment on traditional rides. And I think that's really going to be cool. And I think that's where I'm really happy to see technology. It's not necessarily just taking two things and putting them together because they both work. It's stepping back, thinking of a storyline and a concept and integrating them. So you really have a great long-term experience. And I'm I know we can only talk so much about what like Lago and I'm sure other people are doing right now, but we're excited to kind of show a few things over the next few years at IAPA at their booth specifically on their technology and how it can integrate into a lot of different ride systems. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested to see where that goes over the next couple of years. 
So what do you say to somebody who might be trying to break into the industry? Well, first step is, and this is something just learned from 22 years of doing this, is consider the impact of combining your hobby slash passion with a career because there is an impact there that you don't initially think about because you just want to go with what you love the most. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, because Adam and I have over time figured out a way to make it work. But I will say I don't visit parks in my free time. I'm not saying at all, but not nearly the way I used to when before I had a career in the industry. So there's a lot of I think the pros outweigh the cons when it's all said and done, because Working in our industry, especially if you have the passion and knowledge, is fantastic because you could put your knowledge to work. Uh, and it's a great industry if you're social and like to meet people and build your skill set. But I would just say be cautious of your expectations because, you know, there is the potential for burnout if you think you're just going to carry on for 20 years and live, die and breathe roller coasters because it is a job when it's all said and done. It's a great career. It's a great industry, but something to be considered. Yeah, I think kind of piggybacking off that, it's really patience. And it's hard now because I think there are more people with a diverse skill set trying to get in the industry than when we tried to get in. And I mean, even when I tried to get in, I still have is like my little motivation thing in the basement. I've got this package of letters that were basically rejection letters from every manufacturer out there because I, I wrote and tried to get jobs and I've still got all those and we've actually shared that because Mark and I have uh, spoken at uh, Sky Next and some other ACE events and things and you know that always kind of comes up how'd you get in the industry and uh, you know we say it's sort of skill sort of luck and some patience and you know I, I got those and I was really extremely dejected for a while but I managed to get in you know, kind of through the side door to music business and then with, with Ride Entertainment. So it's it's hard. It's not really an easy industry to get into. Like if you want to work frontline at a regional theme park, yes, you can find a job there easy. If you want to do a whole lot else, it, it takes time and effort for sure. And to move up the chain, you know, move up the ladder, not to say skill isn't part of it, but luck being in the right place at the right time is, is definitely a factor. Because as people move on or retire or switch industries, it opens up positions and everyone kind of moves up that ladder, whether it's within a certain company, park, et cetera. So there's the patience factor can't be understated. And that's something that really resonates with me too, Mark, talking about how when you go to a park working in the industry, it's very different. It's not the same as going to Disneyland every 10 years and being amazed at, wow, look at all this stuff. You always seem to have a bit more of that critical eye as to what's going on. And it can it definitely changes things, doesn't it? I, I would say, yes, it, it changes things tremendously. But then Adam and I went and had kids also, and that changes things tremendously. And it's actually reinvigorated my interest in visiting parks because now I get to bring my nine and five-year-old to Knobles every year. And every year they, they decide they're going to you know take the challenge of riding a new ride. Last year was the log ride. The year before that was Cosmos Curves. And they're working their way up to, to the wooden coasters and, and others. But for me, taking a step back and letting them kind of guide me through the park, because I'm not going to speak for Adam, but I was that guy at Cedar Point, elbows out, rope drop. I'm running and no one's getting in my way. I'm going to be the first one to Raptor at 10 a.m. No one is going to stop me. Now I, I show up and very we casually go through the park and I learn from them because now, you know, the, the piece of the industry that we're not really involved in, we are slightly in our operations division is retail. I've learned more about park retail operation just through 
the placement of things, eye level, and where things are placed and why things are placed, it's really that where milk is placed in the supermarket mentality. It's always the last because you know you're going to need milk. So what are we what are we feeding our consumers past on their way to the milk case? And you know that that to me has been tremendous for me to learn and get reinvigorated. Going back onto that, when you go out to a park, what's your favorite ride? And what's your ride that you can say, you know what, uh, I think I'll pass on that. And has that changed recently? Hmm. I'd say for me, one of my favorites, I guess more specific, but like Fire Chaser Express, just I love that ride. Just for something I was involved in from the initial concept all the way through, you know, the opening and all the kind of iterations and permutations that went on that ride is it was designed. It was just a great project and Hershen is a great team. So that was a lot of fun. The other rides like Coaster Style that aren't, you know, we don't work on, but I always love B&M Inverts just for old school fun. I, I think those are some the older ones, especially good, like Raptor, Montu, and we actually rode, uh, I think it's Ozelris, you pronounce it, yeah. at uh, Park Asterix this year. That was a really good ride. So those have just been some ones I really enjoy. And then the Mondial Top Scan, like at Oktoberfest or somewhere else like that, is is a great piece. My all-time favorite ride, I go back to it every time, is the Phoenix at Knobles. And it's not a ride we have anything to do with, obviously. It's just if there's a photo in the in the dictionary for a roller coaster, that should be the photo. It should be a photo of Phoenix. There's no ride that's more fun to ride. There's no ride that's more simple to ride. You sit down, you pull the bar down, you dispatch. It's just, it, it blows my mind year in, year out, how it just gets better and better. The park continues to put money into it. You know, for our projects, I, I agree with Adam. I think Fire Chaser was probably the most fun ride that, that we worked on. You know, just how it's integrated into the park. And to this day, I believe it's still the most ridden or most popular ride at Dollywood, uh, according to... I, yeah, I, I don't, I think the train has more... Of coasters. Yeah, but I, it's, I think, I think it's number two now after the train yeah. in the whole park. Okay. I mean, you, Chris, you, you look at a ride like that, it, it's got it, not, not really strong dynamics to it, but it's not a you know, a kiddie ride by any stretch and a 39 inch height requirement. So you have three, four year old kids riding this with their 85 year old grandparents. I mean, it, it's, it, it kind of goes back to why rides like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, the, you know, the landmark family rides, why those are so great and why they have such longevity. You know, in 50 years, Fire Chase are still going to be thrilling people on that back hillside of the park. I have no doubt. No, and I've had an opportunity actually to ride Fire Chaser. And my goodness, like you said, you don't have to be the biggest, tallest, fastest ride on earth to be able to enjoy it and have fun. And like you said, Phoenix is a great example of that. You have a ride that is not the tallest. It is not the fastest. It's not even the longest. But my goodness, it is just simply the best at what it does. And here's a ride from the 1940s that's, you know, kicking the butt of some rides that were built in the past decade. Yeah. And we kind of call them the EST rides, biggest, longest, tallest, fastest, whatever. And I think our industry, and we built some really cool stuff. I'm not going to say like Millennium Force is the perfect ride at the perfect time for Cedar Point. But, you know, we had sort of an obsession, too, about, well, let's make this bigger or like it's the biggest loop or it's the biggest loop clock to one degree or whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> random marketing span. And I think we've definitely seen the last few years, and I hope it continues, you know, parks and marketing departments realizing that you don't have to have that to pull people through the gates. If you do a good ride... Like, am I sitting here saying that Fire Chaser has the marketability of Top Thrill Drags or no? But I'm saying that Fire Chaser for your turnstiles and your longevity 
is going to have a very similar impact over 20 or 30 years as Top Thrill. I feel very comfortable saying that because it's really amazing. Like Mark said, you get parents, kids, grandparents all riding that together and creating memories. And memories are what bring people back. Like just as much as an exhilarating thrill does, I can guarantee you that the parent or grandparent riding with their five-year-old on that ride and they love it, they're going to remember that. That five-year-old riding that coaster at Dollywood where it's their first big coaster, they're going to remember that. And that, to me, sells tickets and sells memories just as well as something as cool and awesome as Top Thrill does. And on the Thrill side, you know, another great example is Maverick at Cedar Point. That, that ride has zero records for a park that's virtually built on records. But I'd argue to say it's the best coaster in the park or it's the one that I want to ride the most times when I'm there. Because every time you ride it, you say, wow, that was amazing. There's no dead spot on it. It's super fun. It's intense. Um, but it's not 420 feet tall. It doesn't need to be. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm really curious to see where this decade takes us. I think this year or this past couple of years, we've seen a lot of those IST rides, like you said, the EST rides. Does the industry shift into more of a, we're going to make just the best possible ride, and that's the marketing side? Or is it going to continue to be an IST and be in a, a bit of more of a second coaster war of the 2020s? To answer your other question, though, I think you had mentioned maybe our least favorite ride or a ride that yes. doesn't um, tickle our fancy. I, I'm going to give you a general answer. And this is one coming from boring 43-year-old Mark, not elbows out <laughs> at rope drop 22-year-old Mark. Any ride that I need to be given instructions on how to ride to enjoy. Mm, as in, here's how to ride defensively? Basically, I feel like you should be able to sit down, pull the restraint down and enjoy the ride for what it is without push your head this way on the second element, you know, do this, do that. I, I feel like at that point I'm checked out and I don't need to do it again. As we're wrapping this thing up, where can folks find you online so that they can be part of the meme master revolution, as well as following all the cool things that you guys are doing? Well, on the on the corporate side, websites obviously just rideentertainment.com. We're a little long for all the social handles. So, um, you know, like on Facebook, we're Ride Entertainment, Twitter, we're Ride Ent. But if you go to Ride Entertainment, we've got all our social media links on the website too. Personally, I'm on Instagram at Roller Coaster Sales Guy, and I also write kind of just an occasional industry article for BlueLoop.com. I'm Mark Scott Rose on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook personally. And what Adam said for all of our social channels, check them out. We're very active. We're also very proud to be, again, passionate about our industry. We're a company made up of mainly young professionals that have a lot of passion for this industry. So we always love hearing from fans of parks and roller coasters. And Chris, can we break some news on here? Is that cool? I mean, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> kind of with that, since we have Sky Coaster and Sky Coaster's got this, you know, whole separate subculture of, of Sky Coaster operators. So we have Sky Coaster Facebook, too. And we haven't announced this yet, but we'll, we'll tease a little bit here is we're actually going to have some Sky Coaster gear. I was listening to your other podcast and you were saying that right now really RMC is one of the only ones that have gear out there. And we're going to have some Sky Coaster gear coming out in the next couple months. So if you're, you know, former site controller, fan of Sky Coaster or just want to get something, uh, you know, that is actually authorized by the manufacturer, check out Sky Coaster's Facebook page as well as Ride Entertainment's and we'll put something up on both within the next few months. We may or may not be working on an Acme style flying suit like Wiley e. Coyote wore. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Go online to Ride Entertainment. 
on Facebook. Check out Sky Coaster as well on Facebook and on their other social channels. Boy, we've never had the opportunity to break news here, gentlemen. I can't thank you enough. Oh, and we know we know people are begging for Sky Coaster swag. So when we break big news, it's with Ace. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, I still have my Sky Coaster coaster from IAPA Excellent. in 2015, and it has served honorably under many a drink. So thank you, gentlemen. Excellent. Adam and Mark with Ride Entertainment. Thank you all for being with us today and for sitting down and chatting with us. Happy to. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Thanks, Chris. Wow, Clint, we had so much fun with that interview. And you want to believe this. We actually had more content than we could play. So bonus. If you head over to aceonline.org and you're an Ace member, log into your account and you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content only for Ace members. Wow, very, very cool. Uh, So we're uh, getting into the 2020 coaster season. A lot of rides are being built right now. We're watching construction updates on Facebook and on social media. Uh, What are you most excited for, Chris? What, What are you looking forward to? Well, I'm a bit impartial because being down here in Texas, we have a brand new GCI Woody named Texas Stingray opening up at SeaWorld in San Antonio. And this thing is legit, not just legit because it looks really good, but because it has a lot of really interesting features to it. So not only is it going to be uh, over 3000 feet long, over 100 feet tall, it's also going to have a steel support structure instead of wood and It uses a special type of wood in certain sections to keep it from uh, becoming rough. It's the same type of wood that was used on Ghost Rider at Knott's Berry Farm three years ago. And from what I've heard, they've replaced only five bolts and no pieces of wood in those three years. That is unheard of on a wooden roller coaster. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how good Texas Stingray is. Watching some of the POV videos and some of the other off-ride stuff, boy, it's starting to shape up to look pretty good. How about yourself? What are you looking forward to the most? Well, it's been fun seeing things like uh, West Coast Racer just opened up out in uh, California and seeing Elizabeth and the team out there doing some fun stuff. Uh, You know, Pantheon right in my backyard. uh, You know, I look forward to that. Uh, But I think the one that I'm looking forward to the most, it has to be Iron Gwazi. Uh, Iron Gwazi looks like it's like, you know, like Mean Streak slash Steel Vengeance kind of rmc and that really has me excited yeah it it looks like something out of this world some of the photos that bush gardens have been teasing us with on social media are just ridiculous with some of the angles that this ride is at um i'm sure i'll get up to uh hershey park uh you know they got a coaster coming out too candemonium uh so i'm sure i'll get up there and do that um i haven't been out to uh king's island in a very long they have Two coasters I haven't been on yet at uh, Kings Island because they've come out since the last time I'm there. And now they got another one coming out. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing Orion. It looks like a really nice terrain coaster. Of course, it's a Giga, which is really nice. OK, there might be some argument over that, but it's look, guys, there's a 300 foot drop. It's it's a Giga. It's just like Steel Phantoms, a hyper coaster. It had a 200 foot drop. Everybody calm down. <laughs> uh, get off your Reddits and get off your Twitter spheres. It's OK. Another one I think that's kind of flying under the radar, which is ironic, is Jersey Devil at Great Adventure. Again, this is going to be the largest single rail RMC installation. It's got a super long train, so I'm curious to see how the forces are on that. And, of course, it's an RMC, so you know it's going to be intense. 
Yep. And uh, yeah, I think uh, that that gives out a, a pretty good roundabout of what's coming out in the next uh, in the next year. Uh, what's your bucket list coaster for 2020? If you have thoughts you want to throw in there, a coaster, a park, uh, places that you haven't been, want to do, doesn't have to be something new that's coming out. You know, I, I know a bucket list park for me that I definitely need to get to, and it's not on this year's plan, is uh, is Utah, uh, Logan, uh, Lagoon, Laguna. Laguna? Lagoon. 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 Oh, I got to get out there and do that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Great send park. Us- yeah, it, well, it looks amazing. So uh, send us your uh, send us your uh, audio recording or send us your uh, text messages or your emails. Uh, you can go to uh, podcast at aceonline.org. Podcast at aceonline.org. Read it back on uh, an upcoming show. So, Clint, one of the cool parts about being an ACE member is learning about the unique history of amusement parks around the world. Podcast team member Bryant Yeager takes us down memory road through the history of one of the parks that we've lost, Geauga Lake. The DNA of the American coaster enthusiasts involves a deep-rooted importance in preservation and historical aspects of the theme park industry. In 2000, the organization began the ACE Roller Coaster Landmark Program. This special designation is given to roller coasters that ACE feels are of historical significance. Since its inception, over 40 roller coasters have been designated as roller coaster landmarks. Each coaster is also presented with a permanent historical marker to be displayed as desired. Did you know? Only one ACE roller coaster landmark no longer operates. Our first trip through history will take a look at the former Geauga Lake theme park in Aurora, Ohio, along with their historical Big Dipper roller coaster. Originally known as Picnic Lake and Giles Pond, the park opened in 1872 but wasn't the modern amusement park many of us are accustomed to visiting today. Back then, visitors frequented the park for a picnic and to also take a dip in the lake. The park was a highly praised destination during this time. A large hall was added on property, along with a steamboat that circled the lake and featured a dance floor. The name Geauga Lake Park was officially presented in 1887. In the late 1800s, newspapers reported that the park was the most charming place to spend a leisure day. In 1889, the park saw its first amusement-related attraction, a steam-powered carousel. Other early 1900s attractions included an Olympic-style swimming pool, bowling alley, and racetrack. Geauga Lake took its first major step towards the modern amusement park model in 1925 by installing the record-breaking Big Dipper wooden roller coaster. This new attraction was 2,800 feet long and 65 feet tall, making it the largest wooden coaster at the time. Geauga Lake was eventually purchased in 1969 by Funtime Incorporated. In 1970, SeaWorld opened a marine life park on the lake entitled SeaWorld Ohio after persuasion from Funtime. Both Geauga Lake and SeaWorld Ohio coexisted in harmony as two different business models serving the same regional area. While Geauga Lake featured unique thrill rides and swimming, SeaWorld Ohio offered animal and marine-based experiences to guests. Big Dipper, however, stood as the park's primary high-thrill coaster until the addition of Cyclone, a steel roller coaster, in 1976. 
Geauga Lake continued to expand its attraction lineup with the additions of the Gold Rush Log Flume in 1972 and Skyscraper in 1974. The addition of Corkscrew, an aerodynamics coaster, made Geauga Lake one of the first theme parks in the country to feature multiple looping coasters. Funtime was acquired by Premier Parks in 1995, giving the park a new owner. Premier Parks initially invested $9 million into Geauga Lake, adding Mind Eraser, a Vacoma steel looping shuttle coaster, and Grizzly Run, a water rapids attraction by Intamin. Later on in the decade, the park also received the Serial Thriller steel coaster. In 1998, Premier Parks purchased Six Flags from Time Warner. The purchase would mark the beginning of a large number of tumultuous changes coming to Geauga Lake. In 2000, Geauga Lake was renamed Six Flags Ohio and underwent a $40 million expansion. The expansion featured 20 new rides, including four roller coasters. The high thrill additions included Batman the Ride, a floorless coaster, Villain, a wooden coaster, a junior coaster named Roadrunner Express, and an impulse coaster named Superman Ultimate Escape. 2000 marked the first year that the park sported DC Comics and Looney Tunes related branding. The early 2000s were also an interesting time for the neighboring SeaWorld Park. Bush Entertainment, then owner of SeaWorld Parks, determined that their business model needed to change and wanted to begin adding noteworthy rides and attractions. They initially attempted to purchase Six Flags Ohio, but Six Flags counter offered and ended up purchasing the SeaWorld property for $110 million instead. With this purchase, Six Flags Ohio was quickly renamed Six Flags Worlds of Adventure. The former SeaWorld property was combined with the Six Flags Park and covered a staggering 700 acres, making it the largest theme park in the world. Compare that to the likes of the 85-acre Disneyland Park or Six Flags Over Texas, which only covers 212 acres. The former SeaWorld section of the property was known as the Wildlife Area and featured marine-based entertainment with a number of smaller rides mixed in. The original theme park area was rebranded to Wild Rides and saw the addition of another coaster, X-Flight, from Vacoma. Let's not forget the water park property, which was rebranded to Hurricane Harbor. Six Flags marketed their mega park as three parks for the price of one. Things weren't exactly smooth during these continuous property transformations. The massive park featured many pathway problems that created bottlenecks. The sheer size of the property itself created its own share of problems for guests. Six Flags, who was already struggling financially, described the Cleveland area as their toughest market. In 2004, the park was sold to Cedar Fair. DC Comics and Looney Tunes branding immediately ceased and Worlds of Adventure was renamed back to Geauga Lake. The marine area of the park, also known as wildlife during Six Flags times, was quickly shut down by Cedar Fair. Six Flags relocated the animals to their other animal-friendly parks. Cedar Fair's primary focus was on the original theme park property and a redevelopment of the former SeaWorld land into a new water park known as Wild Water Kingdom. Unfortunately, the park's financial landscape did not improve under Cedar Fair's rule. Prior to the 2007 season, Cedar Fair relocated two of the park's major coasters to other properties. Summer-only operation also occurred in 2007, and the park's final day was September 16th. 
Shortly after, Cedar Fair announced the closure of Geauga Lake, though Wild Water Kingdom operated until 2016. Long-standing park goers and enthusiasts were left with no warning. There was no official final day for guests to enjoy the park one last time. What happened to the Ace Roller Coaster landmark Big Dipper? Though the designation was never physically presented, the historical Big Dipper survived all management and property changes and operated until the end of Geauga Lake's life. Big Dipper was originally auctioned off in 2008 with other park attractions, but remained inside the seemingly abandoned park. In 2010, Big Dipper was listed on eBay and did not receive a single bid. Two roller coaster enthusiasts attempted to purchase Big Dipper, but the deal fell through due to various legal difficulties. Big Dipper sat defunct until 2016 when Cedar Fair, which still owned the land, announced the removal of the wooden coaster. The ride was demolished on October 17th of the same year. Geauga Lake is a stunning example of our worst fears as theme park enthusiasts. The fate of Big Dipper shows us how important and critical it is for Ace to continue their preservation efforts of these loved attractions. Do you have any fond memories of Geauga Lake? This is Bryant Yeager reporting from the Ace South Central region. rides do you want to learn more about? Let us know by sending us a comment to podcast at aceonline.org. So, uh, Chris, have you ever been to Geauga Lake? You know, unfortunately, I never got the opportunity. Been to Cedar Point before, been to Kings Island, but never had a chance to visit Geauga Lake in any of its iterations. Well, we, I, the first time I ever went to Geauga Lake was right after the Cedar Fair purchase, which was like right like it was right before the season started, if I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. So it was like the season start. It was like Cedar Fair bought it. Season started, and they had like ripped down signs for rides and stuff that they didn't have the, you know, like uh, the the you know like superhero rides, Batman and things like that. And uh, it was a very unique park, but I can see why it probably wasn't meant to be, in the sense that you would go there. Like I would go to Cedar Point for a week. And on the days where it was so busy at Cedar Point that it was unbearable, I would go to Geauga Lake because you knew you were going to be able to walk on Dominator all day. And uh, the water park would be packed, but the, the ride, ride side was never packed. And so uh, it was a great little park. Uh, had a lot of history to it. It's a bummer we lost it, but uh, that, that kind of happens in transition and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always tough to, to lose a park. But the good news and one of the things that we learned doing our old uh, TV show back in the San Francisco Bay Area is that rides and things like that, they tend to live on in other places. So like you said, Dominator came from Geauga Lake and now is at uh, King's Dominion. That's a very unique floorless coaster. It's different from all the other ones that are out there. And a couple of the other flat rides slowly made their way around the chain and around the country too. So it's kind of fun to sort of track those down and you know, remember those memories that you had, even if it's in a different location. Yep, we have uh, the Geauga Lake Ferris wheel at Kings Dominion as well. Had El Dorado for one or two seasons, and uh, we still have a monster slash octopus flat ride in the back graveyard of Kings Dominion. And uh, Dominator, uh, I, call, I count that two credits. I uh, got to ride it at Kings Dominion and Geauga Lake, so that's two credits for me. Nice, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh-oh, you know what that music means. It's time to wrap it up. 
Oh, we were having so much fun, too. But alas, all good things must come to an end. I know. I got to get on this cruise ship, so I got to go. And, and I got to go dodge more tornadoes. So, Shovel uh, you snow know. and stuff or whatever you're doing down there. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, I got to go to Mexico, so I got to go. Well, enjoy your time out there. And, of course, everyone listening, enjoy your time, whatever you do, to pass along the long winter off season. Thank you for listening. And thank you to the entire ACE team for their help on this podcast. You might hear Clint and I a lot, but there's a lot of folks behind the scenes helping out. So a big thank you to all of them for making this podcast possible. And thank you guys for listening. Also, don't forget to like us, send us your comments, rate the podcast on whatever uh, app or streaming service you listen to us through. Every little bit helps. And uh, don't forget, you have a way to connect with us as well. All you got to do is send us an email at podcast at aceonline.org. All right, guys, thanks very much for listening to the Ride With Us podcast. My name's Clint Novak. And I'm Chris Roberry. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ride With Us is volunteer produced by the American Coaster Enthusiasts. ACE is a registered 501c3 charitable organization founded for the preservation and enjoyment of roller coasters around the world. Visit aceonline.org for more information.